The sermon text for today is written in Philippians chapter 1, verses 12 through 18a. You can find this passage on page 1784 in the Blue Pew Bible. Listen as I read God's word. Paul's chains advance the gospel. Now I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that what has happened to me has actually served to advance the gospel. As a result, it has become clear throughout the whole palace guards and to everyone else that I am in chains for Christ. And because of my chains, most of the brothers and sisters have become confident in the Lord and dare all the more to proclaim the gospel without fear. It is true that some preach Christ out of envy and rivalry, but others out of goodwill. The latter do so out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former preach Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely. Supposing that they can stir up trouble for me while I am in chains. But what does it matter? The important thing is that in every way, whether from false motives or true, Christ is preached. And because of this, I rejoice. Here ends the reading. that there we go man how many weeks in a row are we going to have this kind of stuff happen a couple more let's, let's try for that or not it's great to be together with you here today my name is john if i haven't had the chance to meet you serve as the lead pastor here and one thing that i uh, forgot to mention to benjamin as he was giving the update about the students was uh, i was texting with matt last night asking for him update whether everybody was alive and such, and uh, he said that three of the, I believe it was nine students who were there, uh, made a decision to uh, give their lives to Jesus this weekend. So, um, yeah, just really encouraging, really awesome thing. So, would you join me as we come to this passage, would you uh, join me for a word of prayer? Teach me, Lord, the way of your decrees, that I may follow it to the end. Give me understanding so that I may keep your law and obey it with all my heart. Direct me in the path of your commands, for there I find delight. Turn my heart towards your statutes and not towards selfish gain. Turn my eyes away from worthless things. Preserve my life according to your word. 
Fulfill your promise to your servant so that you may be feared. Take away the disgrace I dread, for your laws are good. How I long for your precepts. In your righteousness, preserve my life. Lord, with the psalmist here today, we do ask that you would teach us, that you would give us understanding, that you would direct us in the path of your instruction. And Lord, ultimately, you would turn our hearts towards your law, towards your statutes. Turn our eyes away from worthless things that are of no ultimate value. Lord, we graciously sit under the authority of your word here today. Lord, we thank you that you are a speaking and acting God, that you have revealed yourself to us. And that you've given us not just a book, but you've given us yourself. You've given us the presence of your spirit. And so we ask right now, Holy Spirit, that you would be here at work in us and among us and even through us. Lord, we desire that our time this morning would cause us to leave here changed people who have a deep contentment and gospel hope in you. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, it's not at all uncommon for us to experience circumstances that are difficult and unwanted. Sometimes this can be uh, trivial, minor little things like an inconvenience, you get a flat tire, you oversleep and so you're late to work or you're late to school, you dump whatever beverage it is you're drinking all over yourself and there's things like that that are unwanted circumstances but they're kind of trivial and somewhat meaningless ultimately. But there's also other kinds of unwanted circumstances that are much more significant and complex and even ongoing. So for example, it may be something to do with your home life. There may be uh, tension that exists, relational tension between you and a spouse or a child or a parent or a roommate. It may be that in your vocation, you find yourself sort of unexpectedly uh, underneath a new boss or underneath a new manager. Maybe you find yourself shifted to a different position because your company's restructuring, your company's downsizing, and now you find yourself in a job that you didn't really sign up for, a job that maybe doesn't feel as, um, as valuable to you, it doesn't feel like you're using your gifts as much as you could, and it's just not an uh, enjoyable situation. Maybe in your education, you find yourself in classes that are just a drudgery to endure. Maybe you find yourself picked on. Maybe you find yourself in... Uh, experiencing conflict or awkwardness with other classmates. Maybe as it relates to physical health, you find yourself with an unexpected health diagnosis of some kind, an unexpected health complication. Maybe you find yourself living through a season of ongoing chronic illness. And I think that we could all agree, as we look back over the last two years, it's pretty easy to categorize what we've experienced as difficult and unwanted. But we all experience circumstances like this. If you're not currently, you will. (laughs) Uh, You will experience these. And and as we experience difficult or unwanted circumstances, the question is, okay, what do we do with it? There's a number of different ways we could respond. And I think our responses can fall sort of into three main types of buckets. There's the bucket where you can respond by becoming bitter. You can get bitter, you can get angry, you can get callous, you can turn into something of just a curmudgeon of an old person. Just a nasty person to be around because you're bitter. Another way we can respond to those circumstances are uh, with maybe some optimism, 
blind optimism. You've maybe been on the receiving end when you've been experiencing difficulty of someone saying something that they mean really well but isn't at all helpful. In fact, it's counterproductive. When you're experiencing difficulty and someone says, you know, everything happens for a reason. You know, I just think it's, it's just all, all going to work its way out in the end. You know, it could be worse. After all, there are starving children in China. So how dare you feel bad about your set of circumstances, right? And some of this sort of blind optimism that really isn't based in anything, but it's just a way of trying to make people feel good, doesn't always feel that good. So that's another way we can respond. We can respond with bitterness or blind optimism, or thirdly, we can respond with gospel hope, with a kind of confidence, with a kind of stability, with a kind of groundedness that really does defy pure logic, because in a way, it's not logical, In the passage of scripture we're looking at today, we see that Paul had this gospel hope in the midst of difficult and unwanted circumstances. And the reason Paul could have this kind of deep, abiding, lasting groundedness and gospel hope is because Paul understood the power of God. That's what grounded him. That's what gave him hope. That's what gave him confidence in the midst of his difficult and unwanted circumstances. So today, as we look at this passage, we're going to draw out two lessons from this passage today as it relates to the power of God in the midst of our difficult and unwanted circumstances. So the first lesson we can take away from this passage here today is when we understand the power of God, we can embrace where he has stationed us in life. When we, like Paul, understand when our hearts come to grasp the power of God, we can embrace where he has stationed us in life. Verse 12, Paul says, Now I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that what has happened to me has actually served to advance the gospel. As a result, it has become clear throughout the whole palace guard and to everyone else that I am in chains for Christ. So here, as Paul is writing this letter to the Philippian church, he is in prison, most likely in the city of Rome. Of course, there's some scholarly debate about whether he wrote it from Rome or some other place, Um, but the historic sort of consensus over the course of church history uh, is most people believe he wrote this from the city of Rome. And if Paul wrote this from prison in Rome, here's what we know. We know he was in prison, which was actually house arrest. Okay, so we we may have these images in our mind of this this dark sort of dungeony, horrific experience of him in prison. That's not entirely true. If he wrote this from Rome, he's writing from house arrest. What that meant was when you were in house arrest, you were given a living quarters. You were given a place to stay, a room that was your own. You were continually supervised at all times by a Roman soldier, and you were also um, chained. You were restrained in some way. Probably not like, you know, the big, heavy, bulky ball and chain that you may think of. You know, he's probably not laying there, you know, sort of like this with chains around his hands and feet so he can't move in a kind of torturous situation, but he is constantly restrained in some way by a chain. He's constantly supervised by a Roman soldier, and he's given this place to live. In addition, while someone was in house arrest, they were expected to provide for all of their needs. Okay, so unlike modern prison situations, the state didn't provide for your needs. You were expected to either with your own money find a way to generate income from inside of prison or generate the benevolence of people outside of prison in your circle of influence to help give money to your needs so you could survive because they didn't provide for your food. They didn't provide for your other daily necessities or other supplies that you would want. And I think this is part of why Paul writes this letter in the first place. 
This gives us a window into he's writing a letter of thank you because they've heard about his situation, his imprisonment, and they gave him a financial gift to help him meet those needs. So he didn't get three square meals a day on the, you know, on the state. He had to raise that money. If you were in house arrest, you were able to have guests and visitors with you, even for an extended period of time. So this is why in chapter 2, we read Paul talking about, I'm going to send Timothy to you. I'm going to send Epaphroditus to you. So Paul and his ministry associates, they could come visit him while he was in prison, while he was under house arrest. And actually within the four walls of that living situation, while he's under house arrest, he actually has quite a bit of freedom within that scenario to entertain guests. And so in a way, he can still continue to do his gospel ministry by investing in these other ministry associates and ministry partners of his. He can still correspond with the church in Philippi by sending a letter with Timothy and Epaphroditus back to the church in Philippi. So he's in this situation. He's under house arrest. This is not some torturous, awful situation. And yet, it's also true that this is not a part of Paul's five-year ministry plan. Okay? Being in prison, being under house arrest, being chained and supervised continually by a Roman soldier is not what he was expecting. It was not what he was wanting. Paul knew that he was called by God to preach the good news about Jesus to those who are non-Jewish, to the Gentiles. And so Paul's thinking to himself, okay, I know that I've been called to do this, to preach the gospel to the Gentiles, and yet here I find myself in prison. And it may seem like those two things can't coexist together, and yet Paul sees it very differently. There's not a hint here, anywhere in this letter, that Paul, as he's in prison, is sort of, is feeling, uh, is, is feeling irritated. There's not a sense of him uh, feeling impatient. There's no sense of him sort of tapping his foot, being like, okay, God, can you maybe, I don't know, send another earthquake, and maybe I'll escape this time? There's no sense of him feeling abandoned by God. In fact, the opposite is true. As Paul is sitting here in prison, he knows this is exactly where God has stationed him to be. This is his assignment right now. We know it because he says in verse 15, It is true that some preach Christ out of envy and rivalry, but others out of goodwill. The latter do so out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. That's a word. That's a military word that was used of a commanding officer stationing a soldier at a post. So Paul uses this military language to say, Jesus is my Lord, Jesus is my master, Jesus is my commanding officer. This is the place he has stationed me right now. This is my assignment. This is exactly where he wants me to be. So Paul lived with a sense of confidence because he knew that this was a post given to him by his commanding officer. Now Paul was able to embrace these unwanted, difficult circumstances because he understood the power of God. Remember the promise from last week. He who began a good work in you. He who began this work of salvation inside of you. He who birthed new life. Who gave you the presence and the power of the Holy Spirit. He who began this good work of salvation in you will carry it to completion. In everything... Paul views all of his circumstances as a unique preparation for the day of Christ. Because in everything, God is bringing his salvation to completion. And so he can look at all of these circumstances and he can say, 
even in the midst of this, this is a unique moment of preparation. Even in this difficulty, even in these unwanted circumstances, this is God, my commanding officer, stationing me here in order to prepare me for the day when I meet Christ. So Paul understood the power of God, that God has the power to take even circumstances like this and make them work out for the direct good and benefit of his people. Paul knows that God is using these situations to prepare him to meet his Savior. And so he was able to embrace this place where God stationed him in life, even if the circumstances were unwanted, even if the circumstances were not ideal. And what's true about us is that we can have the same exact confidence. We can have the same exact hope that Paul has here. We can embrace whatever station it is that God has us, whatever unwanted, whatever unlikely, whatever difficult circumstances he may have placed us in at the moment or will place us in, we know that he has stationed us there. We know, like Paul, that in the midst of that, God has not abandoned him. God has not forgotten about him. No, this is God's way of lovingly leading Paul forward to the day when he meets Christ. And so Paul here does not sit under the authority of God and say, well, he's God and I'm not, so I better just shut up and and just take it on the chin and endure these circumstances. No, Paul doesn't have that perspective. Paul knows that God loves him. Paul knows that God is for him. And he knows that every single thing that God leads him through is a unique preparation moment. And so we can have that same confidence. We can have that same hope. In every difficult, in every unwanted circumstance, we know that he will carry what he has started in us onto completion until the day of Christ. And so when we understand the power of God to be able to take even bad circumstances and make them turn out for our good, that's going to give us the ability to embrace any place he has stationed us in life. Secondly, what we see is this. We can, when we understand the power of God, we can trust him in spite of impossible circumstances. In spite of circumstances that seem impossible, that we would look at sort of from a, in a worldly way and say, there's not a chance this could ever turn out for good. There's not a chance that the gospel could ever go forward in the midst of circumstances like this. What Paul reminds us of is that when we understand the power of God, we know that's not true. When we understand the power of God, we can trust him in the face of difficult, impossible circumstances. Verse 12, now I want you to know that what has happened to me has actually served to advance the gospel. Again, this doesn't seem to make a whole lot of sense. Paul is in prison. He's under constant supervision from the Romans. He's supposed to be preaching the gospel to the Gentiles. He's in prison, and he's saying, this has actually served to advance the gospel. So notice what he's saying. Paul is not saying, you know, God is somehow using these circumstances. Even in spite of how bad it is, he's still using it anyways. He doesn't say that God is using him in spite of these circumstances. He says, what has happened to me, my imprisonment has actually served to advance the gospel. His bad circumstances are precisely what is leading to the advance of the gospel. And he tells us here two different ways that the gospel has gone forward through his imprisonment. He says in verse 13, as a result, it has become clear throughout the whole palace guard and to everyone else that I am in chains for Christ. So what Paul sees here is that the whole palace guard knows why he's there in the first place. Remember, he's under constant supervision from a Roman soldier at all times. 
And what Paul knows is that he has a captive audience. Paul knows that these soldiers who come in on shifts are going to hear him pray. They're going to hear him sing. They're going to hear him worship. They're going to hear him, they're going to overhear the conversations he has with Timothy and Epaphroditus and these other ministry partners. They're going to overhear his conversations about what's happening in the church in Philippi. He's going to be overheard talking with them in the composition of this letter even. Those soldiers are going to have a front row seat to see and to hear, to get sort of a behind-the-scenes look at the inner workings of Paul's ministry. And so he knows that even though he's stationed here, these Roman soldiers are a captive audience, and they are continually being exposed to the good news of the gospel through Paul and through the conversations he has with these other ministry associates. But this, is, this is what Paul knew. He knows he's been called to preach the gospel to the Gentiles, and what he's, what he's come to realize is, okay, it looks way different than I thought. But do you know who these Roman soldiers are? They're Gentiles. <laughs> They are non-Jewish people, and Paul is getting to preach the gospel to them, even if in a roundabout way, in the epicenter of power and culture and influence in the Roman Empire. This is like Paul being imprisoned in the middle of New York City and having access to some of the most powerful people. It's in this situation that Paul gets to preach the gospel to the Gentiles. He knows God has, has, has given him a unique opportunity to proclaim the good news to the Gentiles, It's not how he expected it, but Paul recognizes this is how God is leading these circumstances to the advance of the gospel. It's going forward among the Gentiles. Not only this, we see Paul saying, others have become more confident to share Christ. Verse 14, and because of my chains, most of the brothers and sisters have become confident in the Lord and dare all the more to proclaim the gospel without fear. It is true that some preach Christ out of envy and rivalry, but others out of goodwill. The latter do so out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former preach Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely supposing that they can stir up trouble for me while I'm in chains. But what does it matter? The important thing is that in every way, from false motives or true, Christ is preached, and because of this, I rejoice. So Paul knows that because of his imprisonment, Other people have become emboldened. Other people have become more confident and courageous to share the message of Christ. Now, we don't, there's a lot about this passage that we don't understand. (laughs) Okay, you're like, okay, so these guys are preaching out of like really bad motives, and Paul's like, eh, that's cool. And you're like, whoa, whoa, hold on. You're okay with this. There's a lot that's un unclear about this, right? Okay, who are these people and what exactly is it they're saying? And Why do they think that preaching the message that Paul is preaching is going to make it more difficult for him in prison? Like, wouldn't that be the very thing Paul wanted to happen? So there's a lot we don't understand about this passage. But what we do know is that Paul, his his concern, his uh, the way he talks about this is that the problem is with their motives, not with their message. Later in Philippians, we'll see Paul has no problem speaking out against someone who's proclaiming a different gospel. We know from Paul's other letters, he has no problem uh, speaking very strongly about people who are proclaiming a message other than what he's proclaimed, okay? So it can't be that they're preaching some different gospel. It's their motives. And Paul says, even in the midst of that, I don't care. What matters is that Christ is being preached. 
And so there's, an, there's a sense here of him saying, you know, even in the, in the face of their bad motives, God can still even work past the, the failure and the futility and the selfishness of humans. Even if my proclamation of the gospel is self-centered, even if it's self-driven, even if it's for bad motives, God can still even use that. And so you see him here basically just laying out, saying, okay, the gospel is going forward in Rome, the gospel is going forward in the city of Philippi and throughout the rest of the world through those who are preaching the gospel from good motives and through those who are preaching from bad motives. So the point here is that Paul, is, his influence is not localized to one spot, but because of his imprisonment, the gospel is going forward both in Rome as well as in these other parts of the world. And so Paul can say, what does it matter? What does it matter what their motives are? That's between, that's between them and the Lord. If they're preaching a different message, I need to get involved. If they have bad motives, God will deal with them. And so he can, in the midst of these difficult, unwanted circumstances, he can point out these two things and say, the whole palace guard knows. The gospel is going forward. Others have become more confident. The gospel is going forward. And it's precisely because of these circumstances, not just in spite of them, that the gospel is going forward. The heart of what Paul knows is this, that the advance of the gospel cannot be hindered by unfavorable circumstances. That's what, Paul, that's what Paul deeply understands at the heart level. That the advance of the gospel cannot, it is not hindered even by unfavorable circumstances. Circumstances that we would look at and say, man, Paul's got put in prison. Well, I guess his ministry is going to sort of be put on hiatus. Well, I guess Paul was, I, you know, maybe I was wrong. Maybe I'm not called to preach the gospel to the Gentiles. But Paul doesn't view it that way. Paul recognizes that the advance of the good news about Jesus cannot be hindered by unfavorable circumstances. This is because Paul understood the power of God. Paul understood the power of God to take even bad circumstances and not just sort of work around them, but use the bad circumstances themselves to lead to the good of his people and the advance of the gospel. Where did Paul learn that? That's the question. Paul learned this, I think, in in two places. Paul learned this by remembering his imprisonment in Philippi. In Acts chapter 16, we read about the story of the birth of the church in the city of Philippi. And it's the first time recorded in Scripture that Paul is put in prison. Now, when Paul went to Philippi, as in here in Rome, he didn't go into Philippi saying, okay, my ministry strategy is that I'm going to tick off some people, and then I'm going to get stripped in public and humiliated, and beaten with rods, and flogged, and then put in prison in stocks, and be mildly tortured. That was not his plan at all. And yet, that's what happened while he was in Philippi. And while he's in Philippi, in prison, an earthquake happens. Paul could have ran free with Silas, but he knew that, it would, that the Roman soldier who was guarding them would have been executed for it. And so, Paul and Silas said, we are going to give up our lives for theirs. We will stay, so that his life can be spared. This soldier, this jailer in Philippi says, what must I do to be saved? He's never seen anything like this before. And they shared the message of Christ. Surely, Paul said, let me tell you about the one who gave his life for you. And the Philippian jailer comes to faith in Christ. His entire family comes to faith in Christ. They're baptized, and they become a part of the church in Philippi. And so as Paul is in Philippi, his first experience, the birth of that church, came about in part by him going to prison. 
And so he knew from those experiences that God can take even something like this imprisonment and can take it and make it turn out for good. He's seen that firsthand. So he knows that God can do it. That's where he learned it. He learned it by remembering his imprisonment in Philippi. But the second place is that Paul learned this by looking to the pattern of the cross. That's what Paul did. Ultimately, this is where it all comes down to. Paul remembered, he learned this by looking to the pattern of the cross. The Jewish people for generations had been waiting for a savior to come. They'd been waiting for a deliverer, some sort of Messiah, a anointed one to come and deliver them, rescue them. And they thought it was going to be a military conquering war hero who would overthrow the Romans and throw out their enemies and reestablish the nation the way that it was in the good old days. That's what they were expecting. And yet, as we read about in chapter 2, we see that that was not God's plan. God's plan was that God himself, in the person of Jesus, would take on human flesh. He who was in very nature God did not count his equality with God something to be used for his own advantage. But he took on the form of a human. He took on the form of a servant and he suffered and he died. So while the people were expecting a war king conquering war hero, what they got was a suffering servant. And everybody, virtually everybody who was watching this, Virtually everybody who saw Jesus executed believed that this, his ministry was a complete failure. We must have been wrong about this Jesus because no Messiah that God ever sends would ever turn out this way. And so it looked like his ministry was a complete failure. And yet it was his suffering and execution on the cross that was the plan that God had to redeem us, to save us. And this was not God's sort of a workaround plan when things didn't go the way he expected. God sending his son to suffer and to die, to give his life in place of ours, this is God's plan A. This is God's plan of redemption and salvation that has existed before the foundations of the earth. This is the way that God designed the plan to work. And it was the suffering and the death of Jesus on the cross, it, didn't, it wasn't just sort of God used that, God worked our salvation in spite of that. But the suffering and the death of Jesus on the cross is the very center of God's plan of redemption for us. It's through Jesus in the most unlikely way coming to suffer and to die for us, that is what actually accomplished our salvation. And so Paul knows that even though the the suffering and the death of Jesus on the cross looked like the the moment of his complete and utter defeat, that was actually the moment, the, the thing that God used to bring about our ultimate good to bring about our ultimate deliverance and salvation. And so Paul knows from his own personal experience. He's seen this, he's seen this movie before. Paul knows from looking to the pattern of the cross that God is able to take the most seemingly horrific and grotesque and unjust circumstances and make them turn out for the good of his people, make them turn out for the advance of the gospel. He knows that. And so Paul, in the midst of the difficulty that he faces, he has hope. He has confidence in the midst of that. And we too, we can also have that same hope. We can have that same confidence in the midst of our difficult, unwanted circumstances. We can trust him in the midst of things that look absolutely impossible. I don't know what that is for you. Maybe that's a life circumstance. Maybe that's looking around broadly at some of the trends in our culture and saying, God, I don't, I don't know how this is going to work. 
How is it that your gospel can go forward in this environment? How is it your gospel can go forward in this place with these people? And the message of the gospel reminds us the advance of the gospel cannot be hindered by unfavorable circumstances. And so in the midst of whatever we face, personal, societal, cultural, in the midst of any of that, we have hope, we have confidence, knowing that we can trust him. As we bring this to a close today, I want to just ask you a couple of questions for application. Uh, maybe jot these down. I encourage you to spend, uh, block off 20 or 30 minutes and just spend some time thinking about these. Maybe grab a notebook or a journal or something and maybe journal some of the answers to these. But I just want to encourage you to spend some time thinking about these uh, sometime this week if you're able to. Number one, what difficult or unwanted circumstances am I facing today? What difficult or unwanted circumstances am I facing today? And just own that. Just be honest about, yes, this is hard. This is difficult. And write it down. Name it. And again, if you're not experiencing something like that, write these down and think about them because you're going to need them one day. What difficult or unwanted circumstances am I facing today? Number two, on a scale of one to ten, one being not really much at all, ten being great, a lot, how much gospel hope do I have in the face of these circumstances? And this is the point to be ruthlessly honest with yourself. You know, this isn't the, this isn't the time to give the answer that you would like to give or that you would want other people to see if they found this notebook after you wrote this down. You know, probably like a nine and a half. This is the point to be ruthlessly honest and say, okay, in the midst of when I face difficulty, when I face unwanted circumstances, what does that do inside of me? How would I rate my level of gospel hope in the midst of that? And what does it look like? What does it look like for me to express that gospel hope in the midst of those difficult circumstances? Third question, who have I invited into the journey with me? God does not call us to walk this journey alone. It may not be many people, it may be one person that you can trust. But God has called us into this new family and we together as a church get to practice living in gospel hope together. And sometimes that means walking with each other through the nitty gritty, the dirty stuff of life. And we get the joy and the privilege of having this hope, having this confidence and, and helping to build that into each other and encouraging one another, reminding one another of the good news of the gospel, reminding each other of these truths so that we can walk more closely with Jesus. As we come to the communion table today, we get to remember and celebrate the way that God took the most horrific circumstances and he made them turn out for our good. As we come forward and receive the broken body and the shed blood of Jesus, we're reminding ourselves once again, we're reenacting our initial moment of faith when we trust Christ and we come to him. And so as you come forward today, this can be a time for you to come forward and to say, Jesus, as I receive, as I receive your body and blood, uh, I, I embrace where you've stationed me in life. It's an opportunity for us to come forward and to receive the body and blood of Christ and say, I trust you in the midst of circumstances that seem impossible. And we get to be reminded of the goodness of God together as we come to the table. I'd like to invite you to bow for a moment of silent confession and reflection.
Merciful God, we confess that we have sinned against you in thought, in word, and deed by the things we have done as well as by the things that we have left undone. We confess, Lord, that we have not loved you with our whole heart, mind, and strength, and we have not loved our neighbors as ourselves. Lord, forgive us for the ways that we may have grumbled, for the ways we may have complained about our circumstances. Whether those be personal or as a family or as a culture, as a nation, Lord, forgive us for our lack of faith. Forgive us for our lack of ability to see and, and believe deep down that even unfavorable circumstances cannot stop the advance of your gospel. Lord, give us eyes of faith to see and to believe. Give us hearts that are willing to embrace where you've stationed us in life. Give us hearts that are quick to trust you in the midst of difficult and seemingly impossible circumstances. In your mercy, Lord, forgive what we have been. Help us amend what we are and direct what we shall be so that we may delight in your will and walk in your ways to the glory of your holy name. And all God's people said, Amen.